The Happy Pair podcast is sponsored by Instant Brand Cooking Appliances. To learn about current offers on or avail of any discounts, check out the link down below in the show notes. Today's guest is the wonderful Dr. Gemma Newman. This is a live podcast that happened upstairs in our cafe in Greystones. The wonderful Dr. Gemma, she has been a medical doctor for the last 20 years with specialty in women's health. She's a friend of ours. She is an incredible balance between talking about evidence-based research, talking about leading science, and also talking about the kind of softer side of medicine, such as love, gratitude, time outdoors, uh, the importance of having a strong purpose. Uh, it's a wonderful conversation. It was really, really fun. It was in, there was a live audience and we had a great laugh. It was so inspiring. And Gemma is so articulate about talking about every aspect of health. Dr. Gemma Newman has a new book out called Get Well, Stay Well. And for those who are members of our app and our recipe club, you will know Dr. Gemma Newman as she's one of the medical experts on our courses. This was a wonderful conversation. It was a wonder, like a great laugh, warm, intimate kind of atmosphere. And it was super enlightening. Um, stay tuned. I think you're going to learn a huge amount. Our newsletter is the best way to stay up to date with Happy Pair recipes, podcasts, and general Happy Pair information. Full details in the show notes where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter that I personally write myself. So, so the place where I'd love to start is really, it's almost like this book is your philosophy. Like yes. it really is get well, stay well. Like it's not like a typical, you know, a, med, a book written by a doctor. You imagine it's quite medical and quite... You know, that Empirical kind of Empirical data and very quantitative. Yeah. It seldom leans into the qualitative aspects whereas, of life. Whereas the first two pillars, like the six pillars in Gemma's book, and the first two are gratitude and love. Yeah. So I think we got to start right there. All right. Tell us more, Gemma. Okay. Let's start with gratitude. So it's the, the gloves metaphor. Maybe start with that. Yeah. So um, as all our lovely guests this evening will notice, there's a bookmark there. And on the back, you'll see the six pillars of my uh, framework and it's called the gloves framework and it stands for gratitude love outside veggies exercise and sleep and what i've done is i've distilled all of the interesting information study information into each of those chapters but in a way that makes it really accessible and what i really wanted to do was to help people understand the power of simple free lifestyle choices, emotional choices that can impact the trajectory of your life. And I think as doctors, we usually talk about things like pills and procedures, which are, of course, extremely important. But when it comes to not having to visit the doctor, other things are even more important. And I believe it all starts with how we how we think and how we feel because those things govern all of the things that we do and say and decide about our lives. So that's why gratitude and love are the first two pillars, because I believe if you live with those two values in mind, then you can make decisions for your life that will help you with motivation to keep going and to completely change what you thought your life could be. Yeah. Wow. And, gr and gratitude. Gratitude can come across very heebie-jeebie and a little bit. For someone who's very... I, I know left we had, brain, we had very left brain. Um, typically, they think gratitude is heebie-jeebie and it's very like, it's up there with meditation and it's like, you know, with feng shui and it's stranger, more ephemeral aspects. How, like, what's the data around gratitude and how it actually improves one physio one's physiology? Well, it's, it's amazing, really, when you think about it, because if we look at the brain and how it works, gratitude and pain are processed in the same parts of the brain. And there's some really interesting data to show that if you are able to tap into gratitude practices, then it can actually potentially reduce pain perception. So it's not just about 
feeling good and good times and things like that is actually really useful for when we're at our lowest and when we feel as though we're in a lot of pain, be it physical or mental. Having an, a sort of a, a spin where you actually aim to write things down that bring you gratitude or bring you a sense of joy is actually beneficial for reducing our pain perception. There was a great study to show that people who kept gratitude journals who were living with chronic pain conditions, around 16% of the cohort that, that kept those gratitude diaries found that they had reduced pain perception and an increased quality of life. So I guess what I'm trying to get towards here is that life is actually really hard and it's full of suffering. And I see it every day in my clinic with my patients people have a really raw deal life is not fair and there is because of there's so much suffering I feel as though it's really helpful to talk about gratitude because it's something that we can all try to tap into to make our lives feel that little bit better wherever our starting point is and if we start doing it when things are a little bit better it can sometimes help us to tap into it when we're really at our lowest and we have a little bit more resilience in that way Beautiful. And how would how would someone start? Because, you know, usually it's the barrier to start that kind of stops people to actually go to it's like, oh, gratitude, like maybe it's not for me. Like it, you might think you've got to go buy some specific journal called a gratitude journal. Like, how would you recommend someone starts? Well, I'm a big believer in making it really simple. So I think for me, I mean, there are so many practical tips in the book, of course. But I think for me, I really try to work with where people are at. So there's this amazing meaning maker exercise in the book, which can really shift how you feel about your life and your circumstances and the people that you're surrounded by. Um, and how it works is I had a patient that did this. So um, we're going to call him Jay and he was suffering from headaches. And oftentimes I've noticed that we always look for important physiological causes for symptoms. And when we've excluded or treated things um, that could be potentially serious as best we can, we move on to how, how else we can help people. And for Jay, he was really fit and healthy. He ate well. He didn't have any obvious stresses in his life. But when it got down to it, he was really harboring a lot of resentment towards his father. And it's something that, you know, he had to kind of rack his brains to think about it. But he realized that it was really impacting how he behaved each day. And he maybe have a couple more beers at night than he should do. And he maybe step a bit later because he wanted to watch a, you know, binge watch a series because it was a good way of distracting him. And we kind of got down to a why, what do you need to be distracted from? And it turned out he was holding this resentment. And so I asked him a little bit about, well, how was he going to process that? And we talked about gratitude and we talked about how it's not something that you just reserve for when things are great. And what we decided to do together, rather than actually write down, oh, this is what I'm grateful for, we did something different. And I got him to write down the bare facts of what was troubling him about his dad. And his whole narrative previously had been, my father betrayed me. Uh, my father thinks I'm a fool. Uh, my father, um, I can't trust my father. He's, a, he's an awful man. And when I got down to the bare facts, it turns out that there was a situation where he had um, his father had asked um, him to lend him money. And so I said, just write down the very bare facts of what it is that you're feeling this resentment about. And he got down to it and he said, my father asked me for money. My father did not tell me the truth about his finances. Those were the bare facts of what was really bothering him. When he stripped away all of the emotional language around it, 
like how he felt betrayed, how his father had no integrity, uh, and all of these stories that he'd built up around how awful it was for him. And then when I asked him to write down underneath it what he had learned about himself, what he was grateful for now that he had had that experience, what he had noticed about himself that he was proud of, he began to write other things down. He wrote down, I, I have understood the value of integrity. I have understood the importance of being there for people with honesty. I've understood the importance of um, respecting the people that I love. And he wrote down so many different things that completely reframed the situation in his mind. And it then allowed him to write his dad a forgiveness letter, which again, he didn't have to send. He just did it really to, to help give some peace to that situation. And then I didn't see him for a long time. And then when I next saw him, he said, of course, that his headaches had completely resolved and that it had just been that little shift that he needed to help him see things differently and have a lot more peace in his heart. And he didn't actually end up sending the letter to his dad. He didn't feel the need to at that time. But just the process of writing it changed everything for him. And so I believe that things like the meaning maker exercise that I just told you about and the forgiveness letter exercise that's also in the book are powerful ways to tap into gratitude, practical things that you can do. And there's many more. Because we naturally... Oh, I got a cool one. Okay, no, even Gemma was saying last night, Gemma was saying last night that regularly uh, when running our clinic, um, often there's a delay and you're behind schedule. And you, on the topic of reframing, can yes. you tell that little story? Because oh I think it's really cool. That's a funny one because I don't... I, that, this isn't in the book. This is something that I do to help reframe my day. And yeah... As you can imagine, when we're talking about things like meaning maker exercises, I do tend to run late from time to time. Let's face it, I run late almost all the time. And f I used to say when my patients were there in the waiting room, I would get quite anxious and I'd start to feel my heart rate rising. And every time I'd bring a new patient in, I'd, I'd say, oh, I'm so sorry I'm late. I'm so sorry I'm late. And it would start things off in a, quite a negative way. They'd say, well, yes, because I had this appointment. And, oh, well, yes, I have got this thing I have to do. And I think, oh, okay, oh, I'm really sorry. Well, how can I help you? As you may know, we're instant brand ambassadors. We adore their kitchen appliances. They're super, super useful. We're very grateful to anyone out there who's used our affiliate link over the last year. It Thank really you. does help. And if you are considering it and on the fence, this offer could get you over the fence. They're giving up to 50% off until the end of January of certain appliances within their catalogue. It's amazing. I use their Instant Vortex air fryer all the time. It's got two drawers in it. I use my Instant Pot Duo Plus regularly to make dals most weeks or curries or chilies. And I set it to come on most mornings to make my oat groats while I'm down swimming at the sea. To learn more about their amazing offer, which lasts till the end of January 2024, click the link below in our show notes. I decided to shift it and instead I started to look them in the eye, shake their hand and say, thank you so much for waiting today. And they just say, oh, yeah, um, yeah, you're welcome. That, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they sit but down. Game, like it totally it, shifts it the changed, paradigm. It completely changed the quality of my life at least and I hope it might have changed how my patients felt about it as well. <laughs> but it's a, it's a good example of gratitude almost in action. Yes. Where suddenly you're putting it on the other person they're like, oh, uh, yeah, I'm a really good person. Yeah, yeah, I'm just very happy to be patient. <laughs> yes, exactly. But yeah, it's a, it's a lovely way. You can use it in all sorts of ways. And I think there is a retraining of your brain because all of us like for survival mechanism we have a negativity bias to kind of keep threats away from us so we're hardwired to give more focus and that's why newspapers you sell more newspapers with like 
mad headlines, you know, because we're all, oh my God. Puppy found and saved. Yeah, kitten caught from the tree. You know, it's it's usually some kind of drama, like that's what pulls us in, we have a negativity bias. So it's almost like we've got to proactively cultivate this capacity within ourselves to be grateful amongst the small little things. Is that what you find? Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting observation. You're absolutely right. We do have a negativity bias to keep us alive, that fight or flight mechanism. We we obviously have to be quite vigilant for danger. But interestingly, there's also a survival and longevity benefit to gratitude. Mm. And there's some really interesting evidence for that. And I think a lot of that is also um, based around um, how we act in community. Because as humans, we're not lone wolves you know, we have been able to create communities and networks around us which have actually ensured our survival. And the best way of tapping into being able to create effective community is through positive um, emotional states, such as uh, joy, gratitude, forgiveness, connection, love. And these are the ways in which we can actually become a lot more efficient within our communities, find more purpose within our lives, and actually then have a survival benefit in a very different way. So I think mm. you're absolutely right. That fight or flight survival negativity bias is key for dramatic situations that we need to have our attention. But there is also another type of survival benefit to the more um, expansive emotional states. Mm. And then how does gratitude link in with optimism? Because it's often, you know if you're naturally predisposed, like I look at my children, one of them is a total pessimist and always a pessimist. No matter what happens, it's always like, nope, the bad thing's going to happen. And then I look at the other one and he, it's like he was just programmed. He always sees, it could be lashing rain and he goes, I think it's going to stop raining. Like he's just Aww. predisposed like that. So I wonder where does gratitude sit with terms of people's predisposition to be, posi- to be optimists or to be pessimists? I think it's a really interesting observation because we are all so different. And... At the base of it, really, what we see and what we, well, what we expect is what we see. So if we're expecting to see bad things, then we will end up seeing bad things. If we're expecting to see good things, we tend to notice good things. And I think that having these kinds of concepts in the forefront of our mind is helpful. And it doesn't mean that you have to be toxically positive all the time. The gratitude chapter is actually just as much about processing negative emotions, accepting negative emotions, as it is about noticing positive emotions. Because it's only really when you're able to accept and process negative emotions that you can begin to access and accept positive emotions. If we numb ourselves, then that's never going to be a good way of actually having long-term happiness. So, I mean, there's actually a really lovely um, story. It was made um, by uh, an Italian psychiatrist. And it's a story of some 14th century stonecutters. And They're my favourite type of stories. Yes. <laughs> Don't you just love 14th They're century stonecutters? Um, and all three men had the same job. They were their experts in cutting stones. And the first man was asked, so how do you feel about your job? You know, you're highly skilled. How do you feel about being a stonecutter in the 14th century? And he said, I hate it. Every single day is the same. I just have to cut these stones and put them together every day. And it's really dull and I can't stand it. And and I'm going to be doing this every day until the day I die. And the person said, okay. And then he asked the second man, how do you feel about being a 14th century stonecutter? And he said, you know what, actually, it brings me a lot of joy because I'm an expert in this job. I know what I'm doing. 
and that's quite cool. And it also means that I'm able to afford to put bread on the table and feed my family, which is so important to me. I love my family so much and I feel so lucky to have a career where I can feed my family. And then the third man was asked, well, how do you feel about being a 14th century stonecutter? And he responded with, I love being a stonecutter. I am building a shrine to the divine that will outlive me, my children, my grandchildren and every generation that comes after me. And it will provide a place of wonder and worship for thousands of years. I am delighted to be a stonecutter. I want to be that stone cutter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how do we train ourselves? Because everyone listening kind of goes, I want to be the third guy. I don't want to be the first guy. You know, so how, like, can we program ourselves? Can we, we like, can, how do we reprogram ourselves really is, is the question. Yeah. I mean, there are so many ways that we can make a start, you know, and it, I think, I think it's also important to value that, that side of us that can feel negative because it's trying to protect us. It's a way of protecting us from disappointment and hardship. And if we can integrate and accept that part of us that notices the negative and just have a greater awareness of bringing in other voices, because we're not our voices. And that's something else that I talk about in the book. There's another couple of exercises where you can reframe the things that you're thinking. It doesn't mean that you have to reject that negative voice. It's there for a reason. It's useful. But it's helpful to bring other voices into the mix as well. Mm. And so what I like to think about is if you could imagine that your highest self is sitting on a park bench and watching the people go by and the people that are going by are your thoughts. And you may have quite a lot more negative thoughts than positive ones to start with. You know, you, you have a load of runners doing a half marathon around the park. They might be all your negative thoughts and you can just watch them go by. You don't have to engage with them. You don't have to start chatting to them. You don't have to distract them from what they're doing. You can just notice them. And then there might be, you know, a child there playing, running over to the park. There might be someone walk walking their dog. These are all other different kinds of thoughts. And it's important, I think, to give all of these thoughts the space that, that they deserve. But to notice that none of them actually are you. You're the one noticing them as they go by. And I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about it because it can give you a certain amount of distance from those negative thoughts and ruminations and allow you a little bit more uh, space to think something new. Mm. Definitely easier when you're when things are going well. When, yeah. when, when it's raining and the dog at your homework and the bridge is down and all those type of things, then sometimes it mightn't be as easy well, to watch it. them. You might be in there, you know, you yeah. tend to be a character in the show then. Yeah, exactly, you're in it. And so another, another quick, quick tip around that is to think, okay, I mean, everybody has those days, don't they, where you, you know, you stub your toe when you get out of bed and then everything goes wrong after that. Every single thing. Um, and I think it is important to recognize as well, we're going to have days like that, aren't we? But that's why I love journaling. Um, it's one of the tools in the book yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, but you've got constant prompts throughout it, which yeah. is... I was very resistant to, to journaling, you know, a bit like a gratitude journal. I was real resistant. And a friend a few years ago was all about, he's an actor and he was all about cultivating your inner artist and whatever. And he got me to try to do it. It was a program where you did it for 12 weeks. You did three pages every day. And I love mm -hmm. journaling. It's amazing. I find it a therapist. Like it's well, just you always say it's ultimate acceptance. It's just amazing. I feel accepted. Just, no matter what takes, I write down, it it's takes, accepted. You can write anything you want and it accepts it. And it's like, oh my God, I feel so accepted. Like it's, it's a beautiful process. 
did you feel as though it helped you feel more accepting of your own negative thoughts uh, or I, not? I usually found I was just blah, 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 blah. What am I going to write? Blah, 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 blah. And then there'd be these nuggets that come out and you write them. Oh, my God, I didn't know I was thinking that. <laughs> and I'd find all sorts of gold amongst the sewage that was coming out. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> that was lovely. Yeah. Uh, I liked, we, we uh, did a podcast with the professor of happiness from Harvard, uh, Arthur Brooks, um, and he spoke about everyone is pursuing, you ask most people what do they want in life or what do they want for their children, and pretty much nine out of ten people say, I want to be happy. And as he said, no one can possibly be happy forever. To be happy forever, you would be dead within a week. We need to have negativity. And if you think about that song that recently came out, you know, that one, thank you for sunshine, thank you for rain, thank you for fear, thank, fear, you, for thank you for pain. But the concept of being grateful for pain and hardship and suffering, this is almost counterculture. I wonder if we could talk about that just because you do, you do have a piece in the book that says, how can I feel grateful when in pain? Yeah. Which I, sounds like it's like, oh, my God, you must be joking to me. Now, this sounds like... Yeah, well, it's, it, you know. it feels almost impossible to yeah. feel grateful for painful things. Um, and the thing is, we will all experience painful things. I think being a doctor for 20 years now, you know, you come to understand that everybody is going to have a pain trajectory, if you like. And some people experience it earlier than others, but we will all experience it. And that's the that's the sort of sobering thought. We are all going to lose people that... Oh, I don't know who that is Someone outside there. He's, he's experiencing the, the pain. <laughs> <laughs> the goblin. He's experiencing the pain right now. <laughs> Perfectly personified. No, but it's true. We do. We, we are all going to face death, of course. We all die. Um, but before that, we will lose people that we love through death and um, through betrayal, heartbreak, hardship. And there's, there's no way of escaping that. And we, if we can aim to integrate what it means to be human, we choose, we choose how we live. And some of us don't believe that we choose our lives. Some of us do. But ultimately, we can choose how we aim to navigate the life that we have. And if we can come at this with an understanding that there is so much that we have the potential to suffer, noticing the things that bring us joy brings so much more peace and gratitude than ever before if we have a cognizance of the hard times that we've either experienced or that we're going to experience and just trying to accept that that's part of the deal you know we we have physical bodies we will experience physical pain we have emotional selves we're going to experience emotional pain but we can also experience loving touch we can experience that first flush of romance we can experience the feeling of of how you, you know, look at your newborn baby. We can experience friendship that expands decades. We can experience beautiful moments of gorgeous sunsets. Mm. And that's part of the deal. It's all the same deal. Mm. Yeah, I, I kind of catch myself because I noticed that there's such cultural programming for you, when you are successful, when you, are, when you buy a house, then you're going to be happy. When you, when you, when you, it's always projection to the future. But within myself, I consistently try to go, kind of, well, it doesn't, none of that stuff matters. None of the stuff matters at all. It's like walking down the road. Are there nice birds? 
Oh, look, there's leaves in the tree. Cool. Yeah. Or like, how can I enjoy where my feet are going? How do I walk? Or I notice when I look up, I uh, like when I feel good, I'm looking up at the sky more than the ground. Yeah. And when I'm in my head ruminating over stuff, I'm looking at the ground or I'm lost in things. So, so it, with myself, it's like the daily simple little things within a day. How can I consciously you know, really proactively do this in my day because that's that's trying to cultivate gratitude on a daily basis. You're right. And I, I'm i called to think of a couple of my patients that have been experiencing end-stage cancer. And one of the things you just said about looking up at the sky and thinking, oh, there's birds, they're beautiful birds, you know. Um, he was he was dying and he knew he was dying. And... He was he, he he became overwhelmed with gratitude for those small things. And the people around him couldn't understand it because he was, you know, losing his life and he had young children. And he said, All that matters to me is that my children and my wife know that I have loved them and I will continue to love them after I'm gone. And the little things that bring me such great joy, like listening to all the different birds in the trees outside as I wake up each morning, knowing that my last morning will be coming soon. And wow. it was so beautiful. Um, wow. And he could find that in the worst of times. And it completely shifted how he felt about something that just was not fair. Wow. The, do, has anyone watched that movie About Time? I have. I, do, I oh, love that I love movie. It's one of my favourites. I love it's it. It's such a good movie. Yeah. And ultimately it's kind of, you know, I won't spoil it. You're, you're going but to spoil like it if you, you say live, ultimately. You live your day, <laughs> like the whole meta metaphor that I get at the end of it, it's only at the very end of it. But oh, like you uh, live your day and like you feel all the pressures and you feel all the stress and you feel all the things and you kind of, you know, sometimes you have good days and sometimes they're more challenging days. But he was, he usually go went back and relived the day a second time and savoured just the mundane, like how can I find the joy within the minute? And he realised that like getting his cup of coffee and having smiling with the person making his coffee and having that, that moment and appreciate it. And then walking down the road and a car splashes puddles on him. He goes, oh, that's kind of fun. If I was a four-year-old, I'd love this. How do I connect with that part of myself? <laughs> as opposed to, oh my God, my clothes are dirty. Or, you know, it, it's how can we cultivate this mindset more rather than this, I'm a boring, serious grown-up that has loads of responsibilities where it's like, how can I proactively realize that I'm going to die and life is a blessing. There's people in South Sudan that have a far tougher gig than we do up here in Ireland, generally yeah. speaking. Oh, yes. And I feel as though both of you have been able to create, obviously, a big community around where you live here, all these lovely people in Greystones, but also have consciously aimed to cultivate that part of yourselves through your careers. Um, and it doesn't mean that there's not struggles, because clearly there are lots of struggles that you've both faced. But I think... It's been nice for me to imagine you reading the book and thinking, oh, yeah, I kind of do some of that stuff already. I don't know how you... Did you feel that way, Dave, when yeah, you were yeah, reading some of it? Yeah, Barry today, and he was saying, like I was telling him about gloves, did you, you know, when we were going through it. And, and Barry actually has an app on gratitude, a new gratitude called Streak, isn't it? Streak? Yeah. Streak. Spark, <laughs> spark, Spark. I downloaded earlier. He's got it. Yeah, he goes, Spark, Spark, new app called Spark. But uh, we were literally talking about it, and he was saying, geez, you've kind of cultivated a lot of these gloves these these within Greystones, it was like, I suppose we kind of have. I didn't really consciously think of it. So You yeah. really have. Thank you, Barry, for saying that, because it's true. You really have. Gratitude, well, love, outside, veggies, exercise. The only one that you haven't spoken sleep. as much about is sleep. So yeah. we'll get to them all. I think <laughs> we'll work away. Like, we did what, jump what, into gratitude. One little experiment I've been doing with my kids for about five years now on the topic of gratitude was 
I think it was about five years ago. My wife's quite religious, so we say one prayer in Polish. Um, we go around everyone in the family and we say five things we're grateful for. And initially it started out as this kind of rope, kind of rote thing where the kids are just I'm grateful for my family and the dog and that but over time like my 13 year old will open up and tell like 20 different things about her day and you don't realise what are the things that she's grateful for and then my my 5 year old my 7 year old kind of just says the dog and says the same things every day but occasionally and by the way can I just say the dog is something to be very grateful yeah, for absolutely. I love that dog okay, <laughs> but, but it's a lovely family activity that we often do when friends are over we often do when greater family members and it's a really lovely unifying thing where you sit and you kind of have a moment together to say the things you're grateful and it might sound heebie-jeebie or hippie but afterwards you do feel like it's lovely life's good in it yeah no yeah. exactly it's like a warm hug it is it's exactly yeah. you know it's it's like a warm hug and in fact that's exactly how dan butner described my book uh, yeah. okay so, so that's the gratitude bit of gloves so now let's move into the next you know love, love. <laughs> Love is all around. Should we all hug one another? <laughs> no. Maybe we do that later. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you broke it down into three aspects, like love. And it's not the natural thing which you think of a book, a health book that's really like... Written by a doctor that I has know. been seeing patients for, for 20 years. Said, like you 20 wouldn't years. think love is one of the pillars. You'd think it's sleep, exercise, movement, eating more vegetables and mindfulness. Whereas love, like talk, talk about your, you know, why love has been so important over the last 20 years in, and what you see in patients. I do believe that experience, oh gosh, I feel emotional just sort of speaking about this. I believe that experiencing and giving love is my main purpose in life. And I believe it's probably everyone's main purpose in life, really, actually. And we miss it in amongst everything else. And so in the book, I do talk about the different kinds of love that are in all the different religious traditions, but also an understanding that you don't have to be religious or spiritual to understand the value of love, of course, and love for an, a significant other, you know, whether it be a husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, is only one tiny aspect of love. It's the one tiny aspect that everybody immediately thinks of in most songs and movies and things like that. But actually, there's different names for different kinds of love in all different traditions, including the love of friendship, the love of community. Um, you've got the Christian concept of agape, which is universal love, love of God for, for all living things. And... I think when it comes to our health, having an understanding of the importance of self-love, not in a kind of way where you're going to be drawing yourself a, you know, a warm bath and lighting a candle, but actually love that comes from true self-compassion is one of the ways that you can feel a lot more compassionate towards other people in the world as well, a lot more accepting of yourself and other people in the world, and a lot more content with where you're at so that you can feel more confident with where you're going. Mm, beautiful. Uh, you talk, like, one thing about you talking in that chapter is about your inner talk. Yeah. Like, your inner voice, because love, like, it's easy to walk around and be that person. Like, we all know people that go around with that smiling rubber face. Grin. Rubber grin. and they're, like, always smiling and always smiling. But then uh, sometime in the future, you find out that they end up, you know, having a breakdown because they really haven't been authentic and they've been really struggling with their mental health. So all of us are kind of doing our best to manufacture some capacity of wellness and happiness. And how does inner talk and how do we kind of manage that? I think it's also important to recognize that the person who's aiming to be happy and smiley is actually 
doing it for other people and that's a really lovely thing to not feel as though you're a burden to people to feel as though you want to be there for people and just project something happy i think there is there's a good there's a good intention behind that but there's also that sense that you know you can become quite isolated and you can become quite lonely because not letting other people into your pain and your vulnerability is um is is one of the ways in which these emotions tend to to build up inside so i think for me um well one of the chapters in the book as i say the love chapter we talk about i talk about how you can notice yourself talk and then aim to expand it so we touched on this briefly before when i mentioned about the park bench and sitting there and noticing it's the same kind of concept um but this is actually a technique that's taught in compassion focused therapy so people usually have heard of cbt um, cognitive behavioral therapy but compassion focused therapy or cft is a really interesting psychological tool and uh, what you can do with that is you can create the concept of a good guide or um, a positive mentor if you like and it doesn't have to um, be somebody that you even know because there are some people certainly patients that I've looked after I ask them who in your life do you admire who in your life do you trust who in your life do you think could give you f grounded honest loving advice and sometimes they can't think of one person and if that's the situation then I will just tell them to think about perhaps a character that they really liked in a novel or in a tv series or in a, a, a film that they feel as though they would know what that person might say to someone when they were struggling. And again, this is where journaling can be really helpful because you can actually start potentially to write down some of the negative things that your inner voice is telling you about yourself. And you can even perhaps visualize what that inner voice looks like, what they might be wearing, the facial expression that they'd be giving you. And it also sometimes makes it feel a bit ridiculous because you could give them a very silly face or very silly clothes um, and then you would imagine then what your mentor might say to you instead. And it doesn't have to be false platitudes. It has to be real. Um, but it's much easier to think about the advice that someone else might give you than it is to try and generate it for yourself, especially if you have a lower level of self-esteem. So making a start by writing down what that mentor might say or what that mentor might say to someone that you love, even if you, know, if you can't bring yourself to do it for yourself. Imagine what that mentor would say to someone that you really love and write that down instead. And it can completely change how you feel about your self-talk. And it's one of the quite useful tools towards more self-love. It's a funny one, the love one, because as you said, like we all think of romantic love and heartbreak and all the songs and all those, but like ultimately... The more loving we are to ourselves, the more loving we're going to be to others. So it really does start and with self. The more loving you are to yourself, the more likely you're going to eat better, exercise better, have the self-respect, self-love to get enough sleep. So or I think the self-respect to say no. Yeah. The self-respect to say no. I'm not going to do X, Y, Z, whatever it is. Well, exactly. That's why it's at the front of the book. Yeah. <laughs> GL. GL. Yeah. Like, and maybe you did talk a little bit about like inspire, don't compare. And I guess social media has to be one on that because it's almost like comparison on steroids because you, you look on it and you can't help, but like it cultivates envy. You look at someone and go, oh my God, and they've got this and geez, you know, it like unless you've really kind of, managed the people who you follow you're likely to see people that are going to make you 
generally feel envy and whatnot, which it doesn't typically cultivate love and gratitude and those type of things. No, I think you're right, actually. And I suppose how I would look at that um, is that if you're going to make a comparison between your life and somebody else that you look at on screen, then it's important to also think about, well, how else would your lives compare? Because you only ever see small snippets and um, the beautified positive things. And of course, you know, you think if everybody put all the miserable stuff that was happening to them online, you probably wouldn't want to scroll through it, would you? So mm. yeah, <laughs> there yeah. is a certain element of accepting that it is generally going to be a highlights reel, and that's what we want it to be. But also, there's many aspects of these people's lives that we actually wouldn't really want. Um, and having, I guess, a basic understanding of, well, I like their hair and I like their abs, but do I actually really want to have their you know boyfriend or do I actually really want to have that house and maybe you want it all but there's also things that they don't show that you probably wouldn't want maybe they're suffering from a chronic disease they don't talk about online maybe they have a very difficult relationship with their mother you know maybe they suffered the death of a close relative we just don't know any of those things that we perhaps wouldn't always want to experience so yeah I think it's just about expanding our awareness of what being online is actually for and what we want it to be for and if we're starting to feel negative comparisons, it's okay just to mute things or unfollow things or just come offline, crucially, I think, for a while as well. It's a shame for people who need to make an income online. I often think that about you both, actually, because you've got all these incredible things that you talk about through gratitude, love, outside, veggies, exercise. But you have to be online almost all the time. And how does that impact your health? Or have you found have you found a way to kind of balance that need for being online with feeling complete in yourselves? It's a, it's a double-edged sword. Mm. Like, lucky when I talked about my youngest son, I was actually talking about myself in terms of, like, it's the darkest, most manky day. And there's the tiniest little sliver of light. And whatever way we're born, it's like, I think it's going to be a lovely day. You know, we're just wired that way. So, like, when Dave was saying he's walking down the road and he's listening to the birds or he's this, I have a natural desire to share that with people. So, like, it kind of suits me well. However, I do appreciate how it's naturally designed to be sticky and that you want more of it. So I've had to, over the years, learn to put strict boundaries around it and realize this is like taking sugar or this is like drinking alcohol or this is like taking cocaine. This is not good for your health, but put things out and manage the process around and it can be extremely healthy and it can be wonderful. Yeah. But it's, it's hard it's, for children to do that, too, isn't yeah. it? It's hard yeah. for children to do that. I think that's where it's important to just be really aware of of, of how it impacts our brain. Just as you know, we talk about how gratitude impacts the brain, well, so does the dopamine hit of having a screen that you're looking at constantly, in a, but in a very different way. Um, anyway, that's yeah. slightly off topic. Anyway, okay, polar opposites. So we've got, so we've got gratitude, we've got um, love. love. We, the next one is outside. Outside. outside which is our sweet spot. <laughs> well, so, well, nowadays, like, you know, I look at most, most of the younger people, like um, one of my kids had a birthday party in the garden. And I realized there was a, there's a big cherry tree in the garden. How old was the kid? It was, it was Ned. Ned was seven. It was his seventh birthday. And, um, you know, there was like 20 kids from his class came. And there's a big cherry tree. It's not huge. And Ned climbed up. And at the top, there's kind of like a zip line that we built out of a slack line. It was nothing fancy. A kind of dangerous zip line. Yeah, yeah, pretty dangerous <laughs> zip line. It was a rusty zip they line. They all had to sign a waiver. But I, I, I watched. And there was only two kids in the class that could climb the tree. Most of them could not climb the tree. And I was just like, wow, mm. this is actually real. Mm. Like they needed me to help them up the tree. 
Yeah. And it just showed me how how lacking it is that we're spending time outside and engaging with these simple things. How, you know, the digital babysitter, it's great, it's easy, it gives you, like, I know it first time myself, regularly I go, Ned, just watch Adam the Chick Mums, please, just shut up. Yeah. I can't handle it. So it's like, how... How does the ideal of outsize and the reality, how do we bring that together in, in this modern day life that we all exist within? Yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. We live indoor lives and most of our work is indoors for most people. And so I think, I mean, I've got a patient that this was really relevant for actually. Um, we'll call him Alan. And he came to see me, yeah, Alan. He came to see me and in fact, his wife booked the appointment because he'd reached this moment of crisis where he was working from home. He was working on his computer. He didn't have any natural light, um, especially in the winter. You know what it's like, you know, you start work and it's pretty much dark and then you continue until it gets dark and you don't just you just don't see any light. Didn't have any natural windows in his studio. And at one point he just felt so overwhelmed, he collapsed to his knees and began to cry as he opened up his computer to deal with the next onslaught from work. And she said, you have to book an appointment to see the doctor. And you know, we talked it through. And it really dawned on me that we don't easily have access to the things that many years ago would have just been very instinctive, like just being outside, having to work outside you know, for many, many thousands of years. Um, so I started small with him. Um, we talked through some of the um, resources that he could use for psychological therapies. We talked about medications as well. But I also suggested to him, let's just for a start, create two tea breaks in your day where you purposely leave the area that you are in working and go outside and do a few star jumps while you're waiting for the kettle to boil outside. And maybe even take off your shoes and do it on the grass. Just bear with me. Just do that. Just while you're waiting for the kettle to boil twice a day. <laughs> um, and he did. And the other simple thing that I said that you could start with was, why don't you get a picture of a natural scene and put it in your workspace so that when you're feeling overwhelmed, you can change your visual focus and look at that nature scene. So you haven't even got to be outside. You're just looking at nature and see how that makes you feel. And he did. And those two simple things were the beginning of him noticing how he could bring more of the outside into his world. So it started off with the star jumps in the garden. And then he decided, actually, you know what? I have got time for a lunch break and I'm going to walk around the block. And then he thought to himself, had a little bit more mental space. You know what? I'm actually going to set an out of work email response for the times at which I am having my lunch and the times at which I have finished my work day because it's not life or death. And so he began to then notice where he could put other boundaries in place. But what I found absolutely fascinating was that it was the bringing nature into his day that was like that first push into doing everything else that followed. And it's incredible when you look at some of the data around the power of nature to heal. In fact, on the front cover, obviously, you can see there's a lovely sunshine in yellow. We've got the blue sky. We've got the green underneath. And that perfectly encapsulates the, the blue mind, the power of water, the power of sunshine for healing in terms of um, happiness, but also other physiological things like vitamin D and so on. And the power of green spaces and how each of those things has an evidence base for improving our physiology, our blood pressure, our heart rate, but also our mental state, our happiness and our mood. 
And um, yeah, it can be very powerful. There was a wonderful study on people having a hospital stay where they had a, an outside window that looked at a green space. And the people that had the window looking out into some greenery, it could have just been a hospital courtyard for all I know. But looking at the study was fascinating because they reported shorter hospital stays, more pleasant hospital stays and less need for pain relief than the people that didn't have a window. Um, it That's makes surprising. such a difference. Yeah. yeah. Could, could you even break that down? Because I know there's like, you know, even in your example of Alan, um, you talked about the, the picture of nature and you talked about taking your shoes off and you're talking about grounding there and you're talking about fractals. For anyone who might be dubious and go, that sounds hippy-dippy hippy dippy and heebie-jeebie, like, can you break down the science, like the evidence behind grounding and the evidence behind fractals and why they actually benefit our physical well-being? Yeah, so looking at nature scenes is really helpful physiologically because there's... Um, in nature, it, I was talking about the lack of straight lines in nature earlier, wasn't I? There are certain lovely recurring patterns. You know, you've know, got the Fibonacci sequence. You've got a lot of spirals in nature. And you've got fractals, which are recurring patterns that go from big to small. And you see them in things like shells and leaves and snowflakes. But you also see them in larger nature scenes, such as mountains and coastlines. And they have a physiological resonance within the eye that actually can have the potential to reduce stress by up to 60%. And so um, you can have a, an actual screensaver on a computer, of all things, uh, which could actually be quite calming if it's a nature scene compared to something that, that wasn't a nature scene for that reason. And um, another thing that helps with nature is, is actually it changes the way that you're, um, that you're um, focusing your eye. So being able to focus on the horizon which is usually a, somewhere in nature, obviously if you're looking further out than what's in front of you on a screen, on a laptop or on a phone, is calming for the eye, it relaxes the eye and it engages the parasympathetic um, nervous system which can then reduce eye strain. So something simple like eye strain from looking at a computer for a long time. Just if you're feeling stressed or you're getting eye strain, simply just pause, look away and look out the window and look for the horizon and do that for a few seconds and it actually reduces things like eye strain as well. And probably headaches. And obviously yeah. probably headaches. Um, and then if you're in nature, so in a green space, you know all about this, both of you, but there are certain organic compounds released, especially by evergreens uh, called phytoncides, which are really helpful for our immune function. And some wonderful studies showing that if you compare a walk in nature, a natural setting with a walk in an urban setting, 90-minute um, walk in a, a nature setting versus urban setting in the study, um, the people involved had a, I think it was about a 50% spike in their natural killer cells, which are the type of white blood cell that help to modulate your immune response to infection and improve um, your immune system. That was the people who walked in the forest or whatever yes exactly yeah so-called forest bathing which is really big obviously in japan um and there was another study looking at an empty tank of water so this is an interesting one you got an empty tank of water and you got people to look at it and then you filled the tank with a few bits of foliage and then you fill the tank with a few fish and um, what they found was that there was a reduced stress response in the people that were just looking even an empty tank of water compared to those that, that didn't and then the stress relief was greater the more biodiversity was added into the tank um, wow. Yeah. So it kind of almost impact. reminds us that we are intrinsic part. Our nature is that we are part of nature. Our nature is that we are part of nature. We are not separate from it. We are it. And I think yeah. it's interdependent. And that's why outside was such an important chapter for me, because I think often when we appreciate nature and when we have a, an understanding of how important it is for our very survival, 
it means that we're more likely to respect it, I hope, more likely to um, tread more carefully on it and eat in a way that actually is more beneficial for nature. And again, that brings us, I suppose, quite neatly onto the concept of eating more plants because we know that the animal agriculture industry, as it stands, is really damaging for many aspects of the natural world. Mm. Even, even even on the topic, I, it's, it's, I was just going to say, because our sister-in-law, Yeshin, was really into uh, Ginny Europe. She put us in touch with her, who's the thousand hours outside lady, who's encouraging. She, she was a, a mother. We re- recorded a podcast with her, but she was a mother of five kids. I think it was five kids, and she set herself a, a number challenge. Of children. Loads of children. <laughs> uh, she said set herself the challenge of trying to get a thousand hours outside in a year, which is three hours a day with her kids and with herself for uh, for everyone's mental health. And she found it was it was like it was really difficult to do because modern life is not set up for it. But it just transformed the quality of her life in every aspect, and her kids, and their mental health, and their they're just. It was it was incredible. So that's a gr- another great resource for anyone that wants to uh, spend and more time I outside. I even find myself when I spend time outside, I go from being a human doing to be much more a human being, and I'm reminded of my own insignificance. Like when I'm stressed, it's all about me. It's like my problems. I got to go over this. How do I challenge this? When I go out in nature, I realize I'm insignificant. It doesn't matter. Fuck. I'm excuse my language, but <laughs> I'm a grain of sand <laughs> on a beach of life, and it doesn't really matter. It's all grand. Everything yeah. you're reminded, everything is all right. Like when I come out of the sea, it's like. Life's great in it. Sure, who the hell am I like? You know what? I love that. I have to say this morning when I came out of the sea, I wasn't thinking those thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Were you thinking about your cold feet? (laughs) I was thinking about my cold feet, my burning, my burning feet. But no, you're absolutely right. I think that probably helps that you do it every day. Definitely. Masochistic. <laughs> slightly, slightly. Okay, so we've got gratitude, we've got love, we've got outside. We gotta go into veggies now. And this And um, this is this is the, the mantra of this uh, establishment. So uh, <laughs> you're very much Yeah, uh, so what is your what is your findings in terms of food? Because nowadays fifty percent of calories that most people are eating are ultra processed foods. You know in the US it's sixty percent. Yeah. What's the story about veg, Gemma? So in the veggies chapter, I encompass what we eat, and it's not just veggies. I talk about other healthy foods as well, but also how we feel about what we eat. Because again, I don't think that's talked about enough. So um, I've had some lovely contributions from a specialist who um, dealt with an eating disorder and now um, is a doctor in helping people with um, eating disorders. And also a man who suffered from, from food addiction and was part of a really important study showing that good nutrition was one of the things that you can use to help people overcome addictions as well. So it's very interesting to think about what food means to us as well as what it can provide for us. And when we think about the studies that we have to show that nutrition is useful, there we have an awful lot of great evidence. Um, It's interesting to me that when we think about premature death, There's only four conditions globally that contribute 80% of premature death. Hello. Can you come and see see me straight away? That's lovely. So um, there are four health conditions that can contribute to 80% of all premature deaths, and that's heart disease, cancer, lung disease, and diabetes. And food, eating a plant-predominant diet, Sensible use of alcohol, not smoking, and regular movement of your body prevents 80% of all of those causes of premature death. So when we we look at things like dying early, we can see that the veggies chapter is 
absolutely pivotal and foundational for having a longer, healthier life. And food plays the biggest role. It, it surpasses drug use, alcohol misuse, um, and um, uh, the, um, the yeah, alcohol, um, exercise, drug use, all of that. Food is the number one. Wow. And food is like, food is the greatest, one of the greatest source of pleasure in life. And it's such a social thing. And we all, you know, it, it's some, it's, one, it, it's need as sustenance. But the problem is the culture nowadays is where processed foods are so prevalent. So it's really difficult to make healthy food choices. Like the system is not set up for us to make f healthy food choices because everyone here and everyone listening knows, yeah, I know I should eat more vegetables. I should eat more fruit and beans and all that kind of stuff. But like pizza is so easy and life's so busy and like it's not easy. Like it's not for so many people. I know. And that's one of the biggest struggles, isn't it? Because we are set up to fail, essentially. And... I see that with my patients as well. I think it's not fair that many of us who are, many of my patients especially, who are struggling financially, are living in places where there's more advertising for fast food um, and it makes sense that there is more processed food in general for them to buy that's cheaper and they don't necessarily have the bandwidth to learn how to cook different things. And if they do, they might buy a healthier option and their kids might reject it and then they've wasted the money they have and they haven't got any more money to buy anything else. And there's a lot of different things that go into just making a healthy meal. Um, but ultimately, I think what the book is really about is changing the things that you can change or that you do have the bandwidth to change and making it easier to do that if you can. And that's always been my message is, is to think about, OK, well, if there is something I can do, let's make a start. And the lovely thing about it, I know it's a black and white hardback book, but there is a QR code so people can look at the photos of the recipes so they can actually think, oh, I quite fancy that one. I quite fancy that one. And you know this because you have provided a lovely recipe of your very oh, yeah, own yeah, yeah. for the book, which is just wonderful. And that does make it a little bit easier than it would otherwise have been using simple, easy, cheap ingredients and just kind of giving people the guidance to give it a go. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, what, what would be some tips that you'd give to anyone here and anyone listening to eat more veg? Because um, you, you, I'm sure every day you're dishing out like people are at, you're yeah. trying to get your patients to eat more veg. Well, my top tip is to start where you're at. <laughs> so I think in January, people make all sorts of massive rash decisions about what they're going to do. And you know, whether it be um, no alcohol for the month or veganuary for the month or massive fitness regime for the month, it can be a challenge to keep that up. So I always like to think about well, where are we starting from? What is possible from where you are right now? And if somebody's got loads of um, processed ready meals that they usually buy, then something simple. In fact, I had this with one of my patients, actually. He has type 2 diabetes and he was used to getting ready meals from the local supermarket. And so I suggested, well, why don't you try these plant-based ready meals instead? They're a similar price and just see how you go because he, you know, he wasn't into cooking at all. And he found that his average blood sugar control was so much better on these plant-based ready meals that he'd purchased that he had to, with guidance, reduce his insulin dose and even actually ended up stopping his insulin, type 2 diabetic this is, because of the change he'd made. And it was a very simple change. It's just doing that instead of that. Yeah, but it made a massive difference. So it really depends on the person. Uh, and their circumstances. Because if you've got a busy parent with five kids, then they may have a very different set of challenges than an elderly, frail person who may have a bit more of a budget, but um, 
wouldn't have the manual dexterity to start chopping up, you know, carrots and onions and garlic and things like that. So, yeah, it depends mm. on the person. Before mm. we move off the veg, the one thing you said there was how people feel about the food they eat. Yeah. And like I know for myself, I ate a raw food diet for a year. It was extremely healthy physiologically, but it was quite isolated and I was quite weird and I felt a bit like the kind of little strange person over in the corner eating their kale, like quite like a little rabbit or a herbivore. Um, and I just, at times I felt like I should just sit in there and eat pizza. I think that would be better for me because it'd be a celebration. There'd be a sense of, yes, give it to me. So <laughs> I, I wonder if you could talk briefly on the topic of how we feel about food and how that, the, the psychosomatic relationship of food yeah. and how it nourishes our body and our soul and our spirit. Absolutely. And I think that our relationship with food can really govern how we make long-term decisions about what we eat. And food is about community as well. Food is about connection. Food is about memories. Food is about um, culture and tradition. And there are so many other things that weave into food, which I think is extremely important because we're social beings. And um, so what I always like to think of is, is aim to make your diet um, as pleasurable and as healthy as you can. Um, and sometimes that's going to mean having the pizza. Sometimes that's going to mean having that delicious croissant and coffee or whatever it is that you would share with your friends. Um, but you wouldn't necessarily want to do every single day because then it's a different feeling that comes up. So I think really it's about awareness of what the food is giving you and how it makes you feel. And having an understanding of that relationship to food, because we all have a relationship with food. I think this is the thing, maybe maybe more common to men than women is, is they think, okay, well, you know, it's actually, I don't have a relationship with food. I just eat what I'm, you know, what I think is healthy. Or you know, there's a lot of people that are into bodybuilding that don't, that they will be very rigid with their with their food routines and they'll think, okay, well, this is normal. This is fine. This is what I'm doing now. But then they're sitting in the corner and not enjoying the food at a family wedding or, you know, whatever it is. There's that lack of rigidity, which ultimately will make them quite miserable. So I think it's, again, it's about really having a, an expanded awareness of what your food is giving you for your body and for your mind and then making a more conscious choice. Yeah, I love that. Very yeah. good. Okay, moves us on to okay, E. Gloves. So, yeah, e. G-L-O-V-E. Good spelling. Exercise. Great spelling. Thanks, Yes, Dave. exercise. So, exercise is one of the... Th you know what? This is probably the pillar that I probably have struggled with the most in my lifetime because I was always um, a very inactive child. I was an only child for a long time before my lovely sister was born. And I was a bookworm. How much older are you than your sister? 12. 12, 12 years. Yes. Yes, Dave. I was living in South Africa. Oh. Yeah. And you get points too, Steve. Yeah, Thanks. you get points. <laughs> Both. One, one all. Both get one points. And, you know, I didn't grow up with, with, with much money. And <laughs> my mum couldn't afford to get me a sports bra, right? And I had, you know, I had a big chest at that time. And it was, you know, very self-conscious young teen girl, didn't want to exercise, didn't want to move my body. I would try and get out of it every opportunity. And that continued through all through my my teen years and into my 20s even, that I just was really resistant to moving my body. And I think a lot of people don't talk about the aspect of, of that self-conscious element, especially perhaps for women. I don't know. I don't speak for all women, but that's certainly how I felt. Um, but it's really important that we consider how moving our body is vital for mental and physical health. Um, and in fact, there's certain communities as well. I've got patients from South Asian communities. And although yoga 
is a really big part of South Asian communities in general. Um, I would say on average, physical movement is not generally encouraged for women of that culture and of a certain age. And it's really challenging for them to get out into sports clothes and go and do a sports class or an exercise or, you know, join a gym or any of those things. So I think it's a really important conversation um, to be have had because it is so vital for longevity, for state of mind. There's an amazing study from 2018 that looked at 23 randomized control trials on nearly half a million people that showed that moving your body had a strong correlation with happiness. And you only needed to do 10 minutes a week to start experiencing those psychological benefits of movement. And I think wow, if 10 minutes a week is yeah. pretty And achievable. movement is yeah. walking. Movement any, isn't any like movement. triathlons or like... No, you don't need to buy more yeah. new exercise gear. Yeah, you know, you don't need, you no, don't need okay, to be... <laughs> I mean, obviously I have a sports bra now, so that helps <laughs> me. <laughs> well, we were training on these very floors earlier yes, today. Yes, exactly. Um, but no, it doesn't mean that you have to join a gym or, 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 or sign up for a marathon. You just have to incorporate movement in your day. And I'm going to refer back to Dan Butner again. He, um, he talks about how people in the blue zones, you know, they don't have gym memberships or fancy Lululemon, you know, work, workout gear. They just move consistently throughout the day. And they've done that from when they were young children all the way through to the age of 100. So just aiming to move um, is so great for cognition, for memory. Um, for happiness, your physiology, for everything. Well, you see that you can say to those people, well, they're lucky. They grew up in 1900 and they had 50 years of moving of hardship, of pretty much hardship. So it's baked into their biology. Whereas people born nowadays, it's like, you know, sitting jobs and sitting at home and Netflix. Underfloor heating. Underfloor heating and comfort. Like we're so comfortable. that, like, why would I want to move? Like, you know, designing a kitchen, like a little kitchen. Like, you don't even have to move to brush you, your teeth. Now. Yeah, we're like, you don't have <laughs> to design a kitchen where there's the, the minimum amount of movement. <laughs> so we're almost like trying to design movement out of our life. So it's true. at the expense of, the, the basic human evolution where movement makes us feel good in every aspect, like it reduces stress. It, it makes like us love move more. It makes us love more. It makes yeah. us feel more grateful. Like it's, it, 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 it makes all the other principles within your acronym of gloves, you know, it makes it much easier to fulfill them. Yes, you're right. And it's making me have itchy feet just thinking about the fact Quick, that we just let's sit. Let's go for a walk. Um, <laughs> I've actually got an exercise in the book, which is very good. And it's, do you know? Can we all do it now? Yeah, we can, do, we can do it now. It's, yeah, sure, it's very, wait, 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 let me introduce wait, it first. Wait, wait, wait. Right. Okay. Gonna I'm going to get ahead of ourselves. Um, so I want to ask you, you've got a dog, Daisy. Yes. Have you noticed what Daisy does when she's stressed or when she's trying to relieve stress? She shakes it off. She shakes it off. She really one does. point Dave. Like two, Taylor one. Swift. She shakes it off. It really does. And it's yeah. It works. And every mammal does this. And so, you know, even after a big hunt, you know, you, you'll have you know, a lion hunting a gazelle, right? They'll both cold. have a shake, assuming the gazelle survives the hunt. And it resets their nervous <laughs> system. Yeah, it's it's like a physiological reset that every mammal does. And obviously a dog doesn't just do it when they're releasing stress. They do it to get dry. And that's an important mechanism as well. They can A dog can shake off, I think, 70% of the water on its body in about four seconds with the strength yeah, of how they're able to shake. Yeah, dog shake. Yeah, the dog <laughs> shake. But it's actually really important for all mammals. They all do it. And we're mammals. Is this the preface for what's so to come? Yeah. We should do it as well. And you know, 
as I mentioned, you know, Taylor Swift sang about it. You got the Elvis shaking his hips. You got, you know, twerking. You got any kind of music Shake your shaking you. Yeah. Should we Let's all close our eyes and do this we? just well, in here in a bit? I mean, I think <laughs> I'm, I'm going I'm to stand up. Let's yeah, do great. it. Okay, everyone has to stand okay. up. Right. And, so, and if you don't feel like start, it, don't worry, you're going to be left out. You're going to yeah. look ridiculous. We're so gonna start, is there any we're gonna start to the gentle. Shape? We start gentle. And then we kind of, we work I in our shoulders. We work in our shoulders. We work in our hips. We work our hands. I can't do it with this one because it's supposed to be on my lips. But I'm going to do it with this arm. And then we literally shake it off. Woo! We just give it a shake. And then if you can, you lift up one leg. go, And then lift up the other leg. go, And you can make the noise as well, if you like. Woo! Shake it off, shake it off. There we go. Oh. Right, how is everybody feeling? Awake, charged. Okay, there. a little bit recharged. There we go. I enjoyed nice. that. There we are. That was very good. <laughs> I realise we have gone over an hour, so we will do Q&A after we've covered the last one. Oh, last one, sleep. Okay. Sorry, uh, you're doing amazing, Gemma. You're okay, wonderful. Okay, sleep. Last one, which, which, which I thought the first one, I thought the first place to lead on this, because sleep, everyone knows, ah, oh, sleep, super important, seven to eight hours a night, great, brilliant. There was one thing in your book which I thought was really clever. It says, how to set up a healthy sleep routine. Yeah. Because like, that's, everyone knows, everyone here knows sleep's super important, but like we struggle with just ha how? habits which we've had. So yeah. And how would you recommend self-love to go to bed? Maybe not the self-love, just the, I don't know, just you like a Netflix show or you like eating chocolate or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So I think you, you've, you've picked up on something important which I also noticed in the conversation about sleep. Now we all know it's really important. Now we all know that if we don't get enough sleep, you know, we could get dementia early and uh, all sorts of issues. But many of us don't actually <laughs> know, well, how do we stop that? So I think there's two kinds of person, really, that I talk to in the book. The first kind of person is somebody who understands how important sleep is, but doesn't really pay much attention to it. Um, and there's the kind of person who has tried what they think of as literally everything to get a good night's sleep, but failed to do so. And there's two, they're quite different. And so the advice is slight di slightly different depending on if you've really struggled with chronic insomnia versus if you are somebody that hasn't really paid attention. So if we're going to start off with a basic sleep routine, the number one thing I would say is wake up at the same time every day. Yeah, you got a nice thing that says don't lie in. I thought it was like, oh, that's clever. Don't lie in. It's just don't lie really in. simple. Because yeah. most people work Monday to Friday and, oh, Saturday, yeah, get a lie in. And often you lie I'm in and you feel catch up for the sleep that I didn't have during the week. Yeah, I don't think that works based on the studies I've read. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so tell us about not lying in and about not catching up and sleep, these ideas. So basically, the, you're... Oh, have a little bit of non-alcoholic beer. I like that. Um, so when you attempt to lie in, you're not able to catch up on sleep that you've lost. And so getting up at the same time allows your body a bit more uh, predictability, it allows your circadian rhythm the chance to do what it needs to do to kind of help you have that desire for sleep later on in the day. And so avoiding big shifts in your routine will help your body to know what time you're supposed to go to sleep at night. And that's why getting up at the same time each day is so important. It's not necessarily as important to have a set schedule for going to sleep. And in fact, for people with chronic insomnia, part of insomnia CBT is actually to aim to rediscover your sleep drive by going through controlled sleep deprivation, which means that you do actually end up in that particular therapy going to bed potentially far later than you would normally in order to feel sleepy when you're going to bed. But getting up at the same time is crucial. So even if you've had barely a wink of sleep or your, your, your brain is telling you, 
how little sleep you've had, you still have to get up at the same time and go through the whole process the next night. So, so what you're talking about here is all seven days of the week to ideally get up around the same time. Ideally, yeah. yeah. Okay. Whatever else is going on. As best as we can. As best you can. Yeah. Um, Even when we stay in a hotel. Yeah. Okay. Just checking. <laughs> yeah. Um, and getting outside um, early in the day is another really important one. For sleep. For sleep, absolutely. Okay. That sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? But if you get up um, and in the winter, it's obviously um, the sun rises later than in the summer. But um, as soon as the sun comes up, getting outside and just looking at the sky um, allows you your your body to, to make um, more serotonin. And then a few hours later, 12 hours later, some of that turns into melatonin, which is an important hormone for helping you to, again, create that drive for sleep. And that process begins first thing in the morning. So if you go outside first thing, experience full daylight, whatever the weather, it could be a miserable day weather-wise, it could be cloudy, um, it could be raining, it doesn't matter. If you just look up into the sky, as soon as you um, wake up and as soon as it's light, um, that that sets you up for a really good night's sleep later on in the day. And again, you know, we think about the other things that don't set you up for good night's sleep. Well, it's the whole screen situation again, isn't it? We've got blue light being emitted from all sorts of screens that then reduce our drive for sleep um, by um, suppressing melatonin, our sleep hormone. So okay, any, so, so we've got uh, get up at the same time, ideally seven days a week, get outside first thing in the morning. Any other things in terms of cultivating or starting to cultivate a good sleep routine? Thinking about low lights in the house towards the end of the day, using lamps rather than overhead lights, maybe thinking about those nice little salt lamps you Brushing can buy. Brushing your teeth in the dark. <laughs> well, I sometimes do. Maybe, sure maybe you do. if you don't mind putting your toothbrush in your nose, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, it's important just to think about calming environments towards. The, you know how we're, with young babies, you know, we spend a lot of time soothing them and singing them lullabies and having a nice dark room and blackout blinds. You know, why don't we do that for ourselves? You know, we could really sort of look after ourselves and give ourselves that routine. And it doesn't have to be at the same time. But just having the routines that help you get ready for sleep, whatever time you end up going to bed, is a nice way of kind of um, showing your body, yeah, it's time. Let's get rested. Beautiful. Yeah. Nice. I think, shall we open up to the audience? Before we do, yes. okay, yeah, yes. I just need to tell you something extremely important. Oh, wonderful. Okay, great. Excited. In the book, yeah. there's loads of practical tips that we've, we've kind of touched on. But the back is actually my favourite oh, part. Yeah, the yeah, get plan. well, stay well plan. That's my favourite part. It's a good part. like 20% of the book. Because what you do in the plan is you make it for you. And your history, where you grew up, your family, your medical problems, the infections you've been exposed to, the parents you had, the relationships you've had, the struggles you've had are all going to be unique to you. And you get to make your own personalised plan based on your own timeline based on the practical things that you liked in the first part of the book and based on the guidance in the practical part of the book that comes. So that's the very exciting bit. That's the bit that makes people actually do it. That's mm. the bit that, that gets you past reading something and then putting it on the bookshelf. And going, that was interesting. And I think that was interesting. Well, now it's obviously going to be applied in my life, you know, automatically. Uh, well, you know, yeah, idea. exactly, because people just put the book down. And I want you to actually think of it as a friend that you come back to. You can dog ear the pages. You can write notes in the journal pages. You can make your own plan. And that is in the back of the book. And it's it's the bit that I think is the most important thing to propel you into action. So there we go. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. good one. 
Yeah, and often rather than people hearing it going gloves and suddenly go out and try to do them all, it's like pick the one that resonates with you the most and yeah. just slowly build momentum. And health typically is a positive, virtuous cycle. As you start sleeping better, typically your relationships are better and maybe you want to exercise. So it's like often start with one as and, opposed and to try to bite the full, eat the full apple yeah, in one go. Yeah, something that's sustained. Exactly, exactly. In fact, that's why I simplified it in the back to plants, peace and purpose. And then you can create your own plan based on your favorite things or the things that you think are the simplest, the easiest to get started with. So it doesn't have to be complicated. It just makes it really simple. Brilliant. Amazing. Yeah. Can we open it up? So any questions? Greg. Well, you can just repeat them. That's Greg oh, no, there. No, no, it's kind of fun having Greg. voices. Hello, Greg. Hi, Steve. Um, first of all, thank you very much, Gemma, for a very uh, inspirational uh, evening and talk. And to Steve and Dave for hosting it this evening. Thank you so much. Gemma, you've um, clearly adopted a very holistic approach to your practice. Uh, which obviously has benefited so many people as a result. Um, what motivated you to actually start along that path? And a second part to my question would be, not many people in that, in that practice, the GP practice in that, um, would have that same approach. Is there any sort of movement along that path for other people uh, to help such a wide range of people out there that need more than just medication? Yeah, it's a Thank really you. good, it's a really good question. So the first part of the question was <clears throat> what motivated me? And I think it came from a realization that I didn't have all the tools I needed to help people. And you study for many years and you think, okay, I know all about these medications. I know all about the protocols. I know the NICE guidelines. I know the different frameworks that we're supposed to follow. And there's a lot of great evidence behind them and they're fantastic. But humans are complex and humans are all very different. And I did not have the tools I needed. And it made me feel inadequate in my practice. Um, and... I think that a lot of doctors want to help people, but there's also potentially an element of ego as well. And one of the things that I learned quite early on was somebody told me, you've got to take ego out of the consultation room. And it doesn't mean that you don't care about your patients. It doesn't mean that you don't want the best for them, but it just means you have to allow them to have their own path towards healing, whatever that looks like, and listen to what it is they're trying to tell you. And that has stayed with me for a very long time because I realized that when it, the act of listening in and of itself is healing, but also when you properly listen to someone and they have properly felt listened to, they will also come up with a lot of the answers themselves. And that is the beauty of human connection and human healing in general. It's not exclusive to a doctor or a healthcare professional or a nurse or a physiotherapist or an occupational therapist or anyone like that. We are all healers of each other through that process of listening and being in communion with people. And that's one of the things I really wanted to share in the book. I hope it comes across. Um, but also, I think a lot of doctors have what I would almost class as almost like a messiah complex. We feel like we have to be the ones to save. We have to be the ones to help. And it's not our responsibility to do that. And it's not something that um, we should give ourselves um, a lot of a pat on the back for either. It really comes from the person. And um, I wanted people to know that 
if they really are able to find love within themselves for themselves and for the people around them, it can make such a difference to the quality of their lives and the health that they experience. But also when health isn't great, they can find beauty in that, which I think is just part of being human. And it's the reason that we're here. Nice. Oof. Did it, was that good, Greg? <laughs> did you get it all? And the second part, did we get the second part? I don't think we did. Or, or is there, or is there kind of people going against you? I question, in because it can be quite conservative. Yes. In certain aspects. Yeah. So, I think there's a couple of elements to answering that question. The first element is. Doctors are suffering now more than ever before, I feel. Um, amongst my colleagues, there's a huge amount of burnout. There's a huge amount of um, what you would, I guess, call almost... Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moral um, pain because um, they feel as though they're not able to give the help that they need and uh, to give people with dwindling resources and uh, there's higher expectations and less ability to do the things that they used to do. And a lot of people are leaving the profession. A lot of people are very unhappy in their jobs. And so I have actually done some training for GPs to help them with some of these things in this book. I hope many GPs will in fact read this book for themselves um, as well as for their patients because when I've done, a, I did a talk recently with these concepts and at my book launch event, a GP came up to me and said that her colleague listened to my talk and she was about to leave the profession and she started to implement some of the things in the book and she had a whole new outlook on how she felt she could do her job, how she felt in herself and she decided to stay and she really it began to improve. <laughs> and it, it really made my day because I thought that's that's why I'm doing this. It's not... Yeah, it's for professionals to feel like they have a, a tool that they can use for themselves as much as for the, for their patients. Um, and in terms of organisations that will support doctors, um, there aren't that many of them, but I hope that Does something plant like this... Plant-based health professionals UK yeah, is that one that helps the veggie bit anyway. Exactly. So um, there's Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, which is a lovely organisation. I'm one of the founding members and ambassador for PBHB UK, so if any uh, healthcare professional or someone who's actually just interested in uh, supporting their work can be a member and start getting free patient resources, webinars, things like that, that will help you to be able to provide great tools for your patients. Um, and yeah, we've got the uh, British Society of Lifestyle Medicine as well. Um, but yeah, I think the elements that are missing are the psychological elements and the soul elements, if you like, um, which is what I wanted to write the book for. Um, I'm going to wrap up by saying thank you to Gemma. She's phenomenal. She's amazing. I've thoroughly oh, loved chatting with you. Just, oh, well, I always love chatting with you. Hanging out. Uh, her new book is out, Get Well, Stay Well. It's wonderful. It's brilliant. And as Gemma said, it's a practical tool to help you get well and stay well. Um, there's a barcode if anyone does want to pre-order it or get it signed. Gemma's you don't need here. to pre-order it. Or, sorry, it's available right it, now. Purchase it. <laughs> yeah, and just to say thanks, everyone, for coming. It was a really lovely... Thank we, you. We really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I've yeah, loved it. We're all I around. If any, staying around if anyone wants to chat more. Yeah, and there's yeah. some dips and food in the corner. If Maybe. Yeah. I'd love yeah. sharing thanks this space. Thanks a million. I'd love sharing this space. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. While we have you, once a week we write a newsletter. It's called Happier. It's got simple, tried and tested practices to make your life better. We include recipes and practices that you can apply on a daily basis 
to make your life happier. We've had lots of people say before that it's really helped make their life better. So you can sign up on the happyparents.ie, our weekly newsletter called Happier.